Welcome back to WeCast. It's been a wonderful week of weather here in the West End, with highs up in the 50s and lows averaging in the 30s. I'm glad I got a couple of bike rides in because it looks like this week the weather is going to return to its regular winter programming with snow on Friday. The good news is that we made it through the darkest part of the year and longer days are on the way. I'm already dreaming about warm weather adventures and can't wait for them to get here. From the Trailhead Sound Lab in Natarita, Colorado, this is a one-for-one production in cooperation with the Rimrocker Historical Society and the San Miguel Basin Forum. This is Volume 74, Issue Number 35 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the headlines out of the West End of Colorado for the week of January 31st, 2024. As of January 22nd, the price of uranium is $106. All right, folks, making headlines this week from the West End. Trustee candidate results are in, and the Nuclear Area Chamber of Commerce gears up for awards by Reagan Tuttle. In local communities, some will hold municipal elections this spring. In Natarita, town clerk Diana Stark said five people will vie for three seats. Running for those trustee board member positions are Susan Kelly, Harold Coles, Brock Benson, Kenneth Kirby, and John Gist. In Nucla, town clerk Melissa Lampshire said while five people picked up packets to run for a board seat, only four returned those and another one was not qualified. Since there are now three people interested in the three seats available, Lampshire will cancel Nucla's municipal election. The three that submitted qualified packets will be announced after a resolution is passed, Lampshire said. In Norwood, Town Clerk Amanda Pierce said that pending signature verifications and other statutory requirements, three people, Jamie Catherine Schultz, Sean Fallon, and Michael Grady, are running for the two open seats. Election will happen April 2nd. All trustee seats in local towns are unpaid and volunteer. Monthly or bi-monthly meetings are required, along with some outside reading and preparations to stay informed on municipal issues. And the Nuclear Area Chamber of Commerce is working on its annual awards presentation that will take place at the annual Chamber Dinner in February. Chamber officials have an online nomination system for the Citizen of the Year Award and two other awards, the Community Star and the Business Star. Nomination forms have been circulating through email and social media. The Chamber will present its longtime Citizen of the Year Award to a community member who, through their personal organizational involvement, leadership abilities, and selfless giving of their time and talent over the previous 12 months, has positively affected the community and the lives of its citizens. Chamber officials said the award honors one whose community contributions have been both a recent effort resulting in a substantial benefit to the community and a steady, reliable, long-term history of service to the Nuclear Area Chamber of Commerce community. Officials have said that there are also looking for honesty and integrity. The chamber said a selection committee will sort through the nomination forms and look for involvement in community organizations and or civic enterprises. They'll also look for examples of leadership qualities and a history of community service, along with evidence of a nominee's contributions to positive community benefit. Nominees have to be mentioned by one person to be considered. Being nominated several times doesn't bear weight in the selection process. Last year, Amy Tooker was the Citizen of the Year. In the past, the following have been honored. Deanna Sheriff in 2022, Tanya Stevens in 2020, Sarah Bachman in 2019, Mike Epright in 2018, Jane Thompson and TJ Jones in 2017, Brian Littlejohn in 2016, Donna Morris 2015, and Galen Thompson 2014. There was no award in 2021 due to the chaos of the COVID pandemic.
Nominees cannot receive the award twice in the same 10-year period. For a complete list of past Citizens of the Year award winners, the Nuclear Area Chamber of Commerce has a record dating back to 1990. The Chamber will also present the Community Star Award and the Business Star Award on February 17th at the annual banquet. Last year's winners were Paula Riley and Bachman Law, respectively. Entry deadline for all Chamber nominations is February 8th. All right, in education news, the Dominguez-Escalane Expedition Educational Project seeks help from teachers, librarians, special to the forum. The DEEP, Dominguez-Escalane Expedition Education Project, is asking for help from teachers and librarians to create teaching packets to be used with DEEP's website in preparation for the 2026 celebration of the Dominguez and Escalane Expedition of 1776. The packets and website are a gift to the school children of Colorado. The website is being designed using Esri Story Maps, which will have a map showing the location of the route through Colorado. By clicking on a specific day's location, the story for that day will be told. Deep is asking for volunteer teachers and librarians to create a team using the expertise and knowledge that will provide teaching tools in preparation for the 2026 celebration. Deep's website will be up and available by the end of 2024. The volunteer team will have access to Deep's research maps and photos for the teaching packets. The story map software provides access for persons with disabilities. It is hoped the team will involve their local students by asking them what they want to learn about the expedition. Deep's ESRI license provides use for students in grades K through 12, as well as the general public. The America 250 to 150 Commission has been created in preparation of celebrations in 2026. Local communities along the 1776 expedition route are invited to use Deep's website and teaching packets for their community celebration. The expedition in Colorado traveled near the following towns: Herbolas, Ignacio, Durango, Hesperus, Mancus, Dolores, Dove Creek, Egner, Natarita, Nucla, Pinion, Montrose, Olathe, Delta, Austin, Hotchkiss, Paonia, Colburn, Debec, and Rangeley. The expedition came into Colorado from Santa Fe, New Mexico on August 5, 1776, near Caracas. They traveled through what is now called the Western Slope of Colorado and entered Utah near Rangeley on September 12, 1776. The expedition's purpose was to find a route from Santa Fe to the missions of California. The expedition was made up of Franciscan Father Dominguez and Father Escalante and a crew of eight. They they were gone for 159 days, 39 days in Colorado, and traveled 1,700 miles. Members of DEEP come from all four states that the expedition traveled through. DEEP is a group of more than 60 volunteers who are ranchers, archaeologists, historians, biologists, educators, geologists, engineers, librarians, business owners, local historical groups, museums, universities, state and federal agencies. They have come together to preserve the important but often forgotten part of Colorado's history. All are welcome and there are no dues. All are asked to simply share their skills, knowledge, and or desire to help make Deep Colorado an excellent resource for all those who want to learn about the 1776 expedition. Anyone who would like to support Deep with their time and or who is interested in making a donation should contact Carol Hunter, Deep's coordinator at deep-colorado at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-E-P dash Colorado at gmail.com. Donations can be made to DEEP through the West End Economic Development Corporation, and those donations are tax-deductible. Okay, in community news, nuclear transfer station to close, end of February.
by Reagan Tuttle, editor. Many in the West End have used the nuclear transfer station located at 26745 AA Road to drop garbage or other unwanted materials. Over the years, those that used the facility chatted with Leonard Tell and gave his dog Buttons a pat or spoke with the late Tom Antonelli, both of whom helped manage the check-in, traffic flow, and paperwork of the station. But on January 19th, Montrose County officials sent out a notice to the public that the nuclear transfer station and also the Paradox transfer station, currently managed by Waste Management, were closing due to continued lower use. The closures happened at the end of February. The notice was issued by Montrose County and signed by Public Works Director Keith Lobb, but the order didn't come from the county. Montrose County is simply the messenger. Quote, the county was not involved in this decision or the management of the transfer station, Katie Jurgensen, County Communications Director, told the forum last week, quote, but recently sent a letter to make residents aware of the waste disposal options in the area, end quote. The decision was made by Waste Management, not to be confused with Bruin Waste Management of Natarita. Waste Management has been operating the facility to keep them open, but will no longer continue to do so. The forum called the company January 26 to speak more about the issue. The call center at Waste Management in Colorado had no record of a nuclear transfer station. The forum has attempted to reach Katie Hawkins, who oversees the stations, but has failed to reach her. What are the options for people if they need to dispose of waste? The letter states that individuals can work with Bruin Waste to set up an account for residential trash. Bruin can be reached by calling 970-864-7351. People can also haul trash to Broad Canyon Landfill in Natarita, located at 30120 HH31 Road. Broad Canyon is open Monday through Friday and can be reached by calling 970-258-2014. Additionally, there's the San Miguel Waste Transfer Station in Norwood, located at 1100 West Colorado Road 35, though it's only open Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays from 1 to 5 p.m., and also Sunday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Chris Tooker, owner and operator of Tooker Electric, agreed he was bummed. He's used the transfer station to haul construction trash away from his job sites as well as the Vestal House, now called Amy's Place, that he and his wife own. He said he used it about once a month on average for work-related business. Quote, I would agree it could affect a lot of people, he said. Tooker has seen other construction employees fill trailers from job sites and head to the nuclear transfer station. He also knows there is an uptick in use of the facility during springtime when people do general cleanup. Tooker said he, like others, will make do and find another option. But could the closure lead to more illegal dumping of trash in the local area? Paula Brown, founding member of the West End Wild and Free of Trash Coalition, said her personal opinion is no. Quote, the people who are using it are responsible and will continue to be responsible, she said. Quote, it's worrisome, but they are not the ones dumping on our public lands. End quote. Brown added it would be great for the West End if Bruin Waste of Natarita could keep the nuclear transfer station open and operate it. She also said she wished there was recycling opportunities for the West End communities. Lobb told the Forum Bruin has no interest in keeping the nuclear transfer station open. All right, in entertainment news, Flying Bear to reopen February 1st hosts a special event by Reagan Tuttle, editor. Flying Bear Pizzeria at Natarita Bicycle Company has been closed for the month of January for no other reason than to do some needed servicing and maintenance. Co-owner Virginia Erickson told the forum likely the Flying Bear will close annually for a bit in this way, just to perform deep cleaning and work on the ovens and coolers. Now Natarita's Pizza Place, with a bike shop inside, opens again February 1st and with some menu updates. Quote, we have reworked a few recipes to make the menu even more robust, Erickson said. Quote, there are some physical changes 
Cruise 2, end quote. And she's excited Flying Bear will co-host and offer a space for the Ridgeway International Film Festival's tour stop. On February 10th, Riff will feature one and a half hours of outdoor short films. The event begins at 7 p.m. Films are about three minutes in length. Quote, it's just a fun get-together of outdoor film, Erickson said. There will be folding chairs on site, and Riff representatives are bringing a projector for ease of viewing. As of press time Tuesday, there was no lineup announced. Riff's executive director, Ariel Black, is planning that. There will be judging of the short films by Craig Childs, Davis Shasonis, and Jim Hurst, all of whom have been involved with Riff in the past. Erickson said half of the $5 cover charge for the evening will support Rimrocker Historical Society. She said the Rimrocker ladies are potentially submitting a short film of their own as well. And on February 22nd at 6 p.m., Childs will come back to the Flying Bear to give a talk based on a bike ride he completed. Childs is a renowned author currently living in Norwood who writes about nature, ecology, and the human experience. Last fall, he biked from the Strip in Las Vegas, Nevada and rode north out into the deep desert. And he's writing another book about the experience of taking a bike trip from the brightest place in Nevada to the darkest spot. Quote, it was farther than I thought, he told the forum. Quote, my companion and I only used red or green lights to preserve our night vision, and I took light-quality measurements along the way, end quote. His gathering at the Flying Bear will be in preparation for the upcoming work he's tasked himself with. There will be a $5 cover charge at Flying Bear for Child's event, and 50% of that will support West End Trails Alliance. Erickson said the Child's event will likely include discussions of bike touring in general. No doubt the Dark Sky enthusiasts will also appreciate the talk. Food and drink will be available during both evening events, but Erickson said it's best if people arrive early and get their orders in. There have been some bottleneck issues recently with orders being placed at the same time when an event is starting. Erickson said she wants to ease the congestion for guests. The winter hours for Flying Bear continue. Through February, the shop is open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. The kitchen closes at 8 p.m. However, Erickson said the hours will expand sometime in March. All right, over here on page two, we have tips from the West End Posse. This article is entitled Rust by Mark Riquet. My first experience with the heartbreak of oxidation occurred when I was around 12 years old. I had saved enough money from working a paper route and assorted farm chores to purchase a single-shot 20-gauge shotgun. That shotgun was my pride and joy, a declaration of independence, so to speak. When I was not hunting with that little shotgun, I was cleaning it meticulously. I kept every part of it cleaned, polished, and well lubricated. Except once. Once was all it took. An afternoon hunt after school. I was walking a tree line, hoping to jump a rabbit when the snowstorm hit. The temperature dropped 20 degrees, and the wind whipped a torrent of wet snow. It took me an hour to navigate my way back to the house, where upon my arrival, I was greeted with, quote, You're late for dinner. Wash up and get back down here. End quote. By an angry grandmother. The beloved shotgun was hastily placed in a case and put under my bed. I had every intention of cleaning and oiling that gun immediately after a bite of supper. Life got in the way, and it was a full three weeks before I opened that case. What I discovered was a total rust job, complete with pitting all over my beloved shotgun. Rust is hydrated iron oxide and is caused when iron reacts with oxygen and water. The chemical reaction called oxidation. Rust isn't particularly harmful to humans aside from seeing it ruin a beloved piece of outdoor equipment. It can add a bad taste to a cooking utensil, but a small amount probably won't make you sick. As a kid, we were warned about stepping on rusty nails, causing a puncture wound that could lead to tetanus. 
While you can get tetanus from a rusty object, it's not the rust that causes it. Instead, it is the bacteria that may be on the rusty object that makes you sick. Many people use stainless steel equipment, firmly believing that stainless will not rust. These good-minded folks have obviously never lived near the sea. Ask any boater or saltwater angler how well stainless holds up. You will probably have to cover nearby children's ears when you get the answer. In the saltwater world, you don't own anything. The salt just lets you hang on to it for a while. Rust has two enemies that I know of, oil and dry air. Both inhibit oxidizing, but must be used and applied properly. Let's start with dry air. Fortunately for us, Colorado is reasonably dry. When your equipment spends a day with you out in the elements like rain and snow, be certain to dry it completely before stowing it away. Wet equipment stored in cases, duffel bags, gun cases, or tackle boxes is an open invitation for rust. The rust will begin to form almost immediately. If possible, store equipment in open air always, or it must be packed away. Be sure it is fully dried first. Swamp coolers are especially detrimental to prized outdoor equipment. Ask anyone who has ever left a case shotgun in a dark closet during the summer months. Coolers add moisture to the air, somewhat stoking the fires of rusting. Lots of people think good old WD-40 is the answer for rusting, but it is not. WD-40 helps displace water from an object like a fishing reel or the action of a gun, but it does nothing to lubricate or prevent rust. Petroleum-based solvents will not prevent rust either. It takes a coating of good old oil. Once you have dried your equipment, make sure the surfaces are free of dirt, dust, and other contaminants left over from your excursion. The surfaces should be clean, paying attention to any hidden nooks and crannies. At this point, a light coat of oil can be applied. There are lubricants that can be sprayed, but I usually wind up getting the oil spray everywhere else like the floor and kitchen table. This mess usually leads to an interruption in marital bliss, so it is best to avoid the situation. I have found that synthetic oils do not evaporate nearly as fast as regular oil. That is important for items that may be stored for a long period of time. If something is to be stored for a very long period of time, consider a coating of grease. Unlike oil, grease has a thicker consistency that tends to stay where you put it. Tools, jacks, and other equipment stored in truck boxes are perfect candidates for the protection of grease. A preventative measure I have had success with is coating of wax. Before I head out on a trip where I know the elements will be harsh, such as late-season elk hunt, I coat my rifle, knife blades, optics, and other susceptible equipment with a coat of wax. I have found that Renesox Wax or Rejects from Corrosion Technologies Corporation work very well in this area. Better to prevent than learn the lesson the hard way, which is my usual way of learning. All right, it looks like we got a little recipe story this week. McCabe Family Makes Lime Rice Beef Bowls by Kieran Bray, forum intern. A quick and easy meal, the McCabe family loves to make lime rice beef bowls in the middle of a busy week. Brandy McCabe uses the instant pot to prepare black beans before she leaves for her workday. First, she sautés the onions and garlic using the sauté setting on the device. She likes to add chili powder, garlic salt, and coriander with a couple bay leaves to this step as well. Then she adds a cup of black beans with a cup of vegetable broth and two cups of water to the instant pot and puts it on high for 40 minutes. The device will release afterwards and sit on low heat all day until ready for the rest of the meal. For those that don't have an instant pot, a crock pot would work or you could simmer canned black beans on the stovetop too for a shorter amount of time. 
For the rice, the McCabe's prefer to use jasmine rice since it has a nice flavor and is quicker to cook up over other rice. Brandy recommends cooking according to package, but she likes to use chicken broth instead of water. She also adds lime juice to the liquid to cook into the rice. When the rice is finished, she adds basil, salt, and cilantro and stirs to combine. She then cooks up ground beef on the stove with half teaspoon coriander, two teaspoons of chili powder, and one teaspoon cumin and two teaspoons of garlic salt. Local beef is always available in the West End, but chicken could also be substituted. When all is complete, the family prepares their own bowls, depending on what's in the kitchen, what goes in the bowls for the week. If the family has fresh basil, peppers, and onions, they saute those. Sometimes they also make quick queso with Velveeta cheese and tomatoes to add another layer to the bowls. You could simply use shredded cheeses, of course. Chopping up lettuce and adding salsa and sour cream are always a part of this meal. Quote, these are the best for families to make with their kids, Brandy McCabe shared. Quote, our kids enjoy building their own bowls and adding the ingredients they prefer. It helps accommodate the many needs when it comes to feeding a houseful, end quote. With busy careers, sports, and children, it's no wonder the McCabe family has lime-rife beef bowls in their list of menu options. Now for my favorite portion, the history part from the Rim Rocker Historical Society. This week our article is titled, Flour Mills Come to the West End, Part 1, by Jane Thompson. This week Jane writes... By 1911, the West End communities were enjoying the fruits of their labor getting water onto their farmlands. The Gurley Ditch was flowing onto Wright's Mesa, the Lilylands Canal, the reservoir were showing some promise. There was talk of bringing more water to the Paradox Valley, and of course the Colorado Cooperative Company had brought plenty of water to Nucla. The country and the state of Colorado were promoting the growing of wheat in these new western areas in order to further their hope to become the leader in the world of wheat production. In March of 1911, a Flour mill was being encouraged for the Natarita Valley and was to be built in Norwood, Redvale, or Coventry. The Maoris from Cortez were the leaders of this endeavor and had successfully operated a mill there for eight years. J.F. Maori and his son J.D. Maori were willing to put up the funds to build and run the mill as long as the area farmers promised to plant plenty of wheat. The farmers had to write a letter of commitment to say how many acres of wheat they were willing to plant, and the first of those promises were for 600 to 700 acres. By the end of April, the site for the Maori flour mill had been settled and was to be built on the Redlands town site. The location was six blocks southeast of the record office, which is still standing in Redvale. It is the little building across the highway from the Redville Community Center, and for some time was also the Redville Post Office. The town of Redville was originally called the Redlands, but the name had to be changed because there was already a U.S. post office with the town name of Redlands. According to the Montrose Enterprise of May 29, 1911, of interesting items from the Natarita Valley record, J.D. Mowry, the junior member of the firm of Mowry & Son, Millman of the Montezuma Valley arrived at Redvale Friday evening and Saturday selected his location for a 26 by 43 story flour mill. The structure will be three times high at its greatest eminence, or 40 feet, the two lower stories of which will measure 29 feet from the ground to the eaves. The engine room annex will occupy 26 by 26 feet at its base. One load of lumber was hauled from Norwood Monday and Tuesday the excavation work on the basement was completed. The older Mallory has purchased $13,000 worth of machinery of an Iowa firm, and this does not include an engine, the promoters of the enterprise having lately decided to buy a new one and not put in one that has seen service. In grinding capacity, the mill will be what is commonly designed as a 100-barrel concern. It is planned to have everything in place and ready for business in the early fall, although the gist of this year will be limited because the coming of the mill at this time was not a certainty until it was too late for the wheat growers to increase their acreage. 
The founders of the first flour mill in the Natarita Paradox Valley are known as men of character and ability in their line throughout the large area of the western slope. Back in those days, there were no government hoops to jump through, so things moved pretty quickly. Mowry arrived on Friday night, picked his spot on Saturday, and by Tuesday had the basement excavated. The men of those times got busy and moved forward without dancing around and talking things to death. By the beginning of June, the foundation for the flour mill was completed and a few thousand feet of lumber were on the ground. At the end of June, the structure was, quote, going up into the air like a bird on a wing, end quote. In mid-July, the two top stories had been added. The roof was on and the mill was fully enclosed. The young J.D. Mowry, quote, made an overland start for Cortez, expecting to return to the scene of his activities as soon as he could load his wife and her belongings into a wagon. They will make Redville their home in the future, end quote. The future looked bright for the farming of wheat and the new flour mill. To be continued. This article was taken from the Montrose Enterprise, May 29, 1911, Colorado Historic Newspapers Collection, Colorado State Library. And we have a note from Jane Thompson. Important news sources of the West End at this time were the Redvale Record and the Natarita Valley Record. Those newspapers were great at publishing the news of the area. Unfortunately, these newspapers have been lost to us, as well as the Nuclear Independent. The Rimrockers are in possession of a very few of each, but much of the local news from these papers was reprinted in the Montrose Daily Press, the Montrose Enterprise, and even the Telluride Journal. I have done all my research from these newspapers, which are accessible from the Colorado Historical Newspapers Collection, Colorado State Library Online. We are very fortunate to have this resource, and to their credit, I have learned much about their area. There you have it, folks. Thank you, Reagan Tuttle and Jane Thompson, for your tireless contributions toward the betterment of our community. I enjoy putting your content out there, so keep it coming. Also, thanks to Johnny Dobbs for the original theme music, and thank you for listening in this week. Now let's get this week's birthday celebrations on board. Again, these birthdays are from the annual Rimrocker Historical Society calendar. This is their 68th issue. And on Wednesday, January 31st, happy birthday, Morgan Wallace, Ty Spangler, Debbie Reams, and McKenna Miller. On Thursday, February 1st, we say happy birthday to Joshua Haney, Sophia Jane Smewen, and Kathy Cooper. On Friday, the 2nd of February, Landon L. Lopez, Daxon Rosti, and Riker Garrett Carruthers all get a happy birthday. And on Saturday the 3rd, happy birthday to Kent Tomlinson. On Sunday the 4th, happy birthday to Nora Davis, Tanner Wren, and Lane Cairo. On Monday the 5th, we say happy birthday to Riley Thompson and Maria Smewen. And on Tuesday the 6th, it's a happy birthday to Orson Case up there at the co-op. Happy birthday, team. Remember, if you would like to have your birthday announced on this podcast, just get a hold of Jane Thompson at the Rimrocker Historical Society, and she'll make sure to get you on the very next calendar. Thanks again to everybody who made this week's paper possible, and thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Brock Benson, signing off from the Trailhead Sound Lab in Natarita, Colorado. This has been a 141 production in cooperation with the Rimrocker Historical Society and the San Miguel Basin Forum. This has been Volume 74, Issue Number 35 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the headlines out of the West End of Colorado for the week of January 31st, 2024. And y'all stay warm out there this week, West End, and we will see you next time. Take care.